Well, thanks so much, Elizabeth, for a uh, very generous introduction. Uh, like Bella, can I uh, acknowledge the Camaradgal people and whose lands we're meeting today and pay respect to elders past and present. Uh, I wanted to thank Elizabeth for your, uh, your leadership at the school and your thought leadership. And uh, as the school moves towards its 100th anniversary, uh, this is an exciting and important time to be part of big public policy debates. Uh, I came at the issue of uh, gun control through two unusual circumstances. In 1987, uh, there was a massacre in Hoddle Street in Melbourne. Uh, a gunman by the name of Julian Knight uh, shot seven people dead and injured 19 others. Uh, it was uh, at the time, one of the worst gun massacres that Melbourne had ever seen uh, and prompted that state to make some changes uh, leading towards gun control. Uh, by a quirk of fate, Julian Knight is my adopted second cousin. Uh, I've never met him. And then nine years later uh, in Port Arthur in Tasmania, uh, another gunman uh, began shooting in one of the most tranquil parts of Australia. If you've never been to, to Port Arthur, it's a, uh, a quiet place on a bay, uh, one of the last places you would expect in modern eras for violence to break out. Uh, but the perpetrator of the Port Arthur massacre uh, ended up killing 35 people. Uh, one of them was Zoe Hall, uh, who had been my mentor at the law firm that I worked at Minter Ellison. Uh, Zoe was 28, year old, 28 years old at the time of her death, uh, gregarious, full of life, and just an absolutely fantastic mentor for a, a young lawyer to have. Um, her sister Eleanor is with us today, and uh, Eleanor and I were just reminiscing as to how extraordinary Zoe was and how much better the world would be if she had still been with us. The fact that I have a connection to two of the massacres over this period is quite a coincidence, but it also illustrates something else, which is that in the period leading up to Port Arthur, uh, mass shootings had become depressingly common in Australia. We were experiencing an average of one mass shooting every year. A mass shooting is an a, a, a killing event in which five or more people lose their lives. And while not all of those mass shootings led to a change in Australian laws, Port Arthur certainly did. Uh, 35 victims uh, is the equivalent of, say, 400 victims in a country the size of the United States. Uh, in Australia, it prompted immediate changes. 12 days after the Port Arthur massacre, police ministers sat down to discuss gun law reform. Uh, some days you'll now hear people say, people say, this isn't the time to talk about politics in the wake of a massacre. But that wasn't the approach we took at the time. Uh, the police ministers met even before the funerals had finished. And they got together to uh, put in place uh, something called the National Firearms Agreement to work across federal, state and territory to really change Australia's gun laws. And about a decade later, a fellow economist by the name of Christine Neal, who works at Wilfrid Laurier University in Toronto, uh, she and I decided it would be interesting to see what effect the Australian National Firearms Agreement had had. 
Uh, and so we sat down, well, I was then a professor at the Australian National University, uh, to delve into the data. Before I tell you what we found, let me tell you what Australia did. So over the course of about a year, Australia put in place gun reforms that did three big things. First of all, we changed licensing requirements. So if you uh, wanted to, uh, be, uh, to, to have guns, uh, you needed to show a proper purpose. Self-defence wasn't considered a proper purpose for having a gun, uh, but if you were a farmer and you needed uh, uh, weapons on your farm, then that was appropriate. If you were a sporting shooter, you now needed to be part of a, a regular gun club. Your weapons, the second part, was that your weapons needed to be registered. Uh, so a register of, uh, of each of the, uh, the weapons was established. And the third was a massive gun buyback. 600,000 weapons were handed back, back in. Now there's uh, footage from the time of huge dump trucks of guns being uh, tipped up uh, as they, were, they went in to, uh, to, to be put into scrap. For that period, any Australian could take a gun into a police station and no questions asked, they would pay you what it was worth. In some cases, this turned out to be a little complicated. Someone turned up to a police station in Darwin uh, with a pair of World War II cannons. Uh, <laughs> they weren't on the schedule, but they figured out exactly what they were worth and, and they, uh, they, they ref refunded the cost of the, uh, the, uh, the, the World War II cannons. Uh, and what was striking about it was that while certain categories of weapons had been banned, automatics and certain semi-automatics, that wasn't most of the guns that were handed back in. Most of the guns that were handed back in were good old 22 rifles, small bore, small bore rifles that had been sitting in the back of a closet. I remember a, a radio host when I was chatting about the, uh, the National Firearms Agreement once said to me, oh yeah, I remember the weapon that was handed back in our house. It was an old 22 rifle that sat in the back of Dad's closet. He said, Dad always thought we didn't know about it, but my brother and I knew about it all the time. Every time Mum and Dad were out of the house, we'd go and find it and we'd muck around with it, and then we'd put it back to make sure, uh, make sure Dad didn't notice. And so that was the kind of weapon that was mostly handed in. I told you before that about a fifth of our firearms were handed, handed in in that buyback. But if you looked at the share of Australian households that had a gun before and after the buyback, it halved. Most of the guns that were handed back in were the only gun in the household. So Australian households with gun, there, there were far fewer Australian households with guns uh, than uh, uh, after the uh, buyback than there had been before. About 16% before, about 8% afterwards. So with that in mind, that's what the Australian National Firearms Agreement involved, uh, Christine and I set to work to figure out whether or not it had an impact. We were curious about this from a couple of angles. There'd been research in the United States that had showed that their gun buybacks hadn't worked. American cities periodically had set about programs in which they would uh, pay people to, uh, to, to hand in their guns. No questions asked, just like the Australian scheme. And in general, there was no impact on, uh, on gun deaths afterwards. Critics of those programs said, well, uh, the good guys don't hand in their weapons and the bad guys use them as a chance to upgrade theirs. 
So gun buybacks can't be effective. But we thought, well, maybe that's different when you do it at a national level and when you accompany the gun buyback with changes to licensing and registration. There are also some studies that have looked at the Australian uh, gun buyback, which we didn't think were particularly persuasive. Uh, one which was done by some uh, people who worked explicitly uh, with uh, the gun lobby uh, had used a, an econometric technique where basically they would have said that the uh, gun buyback had no impact unless the rate of gun deaths in Australia had gone negative. Since we can't actually have negative gun deaths, they were guaranteeing by the way in which they constructed their study to be able to say at the end that the gun buyback didn't work. So we took two approaches to it. First of all, we said, well, let's look at the trend in gun deaths and let's look at what happened after the National Firearms Agreement. Uh, it's called time series analysis. And then we said, well, maybe this is, there's a better way of getting at it. Australia's got eight states and territories and they all had different numbers of guns handed back. So maybe we can look at whether places in Australia where more guns were handed back saw a differential change in gun deaths afterwards. This is called panel data analysis. And it turned out that both our methods produced pretty similar results. So what I'll tell you now comes from both studies, uh, but two, two approaches took us to the same, same result, which gives us a little more confidence that we got the right answer. First of all, there's mass shootings. I told you earlier that Australia had been experiencing a tragic mass shooting event on average once a year in the decade leading up to Port Arthur. In the decade after Port Arthur, there wasn't a single mass shooting. That could be chance, but the odds of it just being luck are less than one in a hundred. And then we looked at homicides. Uh, what, is the, uh, what's, what happened to the gun murder rate? We saw that that fell substantially. And when we looked at whether people had simply moved to other ways of committing homicides, such as moving from guns to knives, we didn't find any evidence of that. It seemed that lives were truly being saved. Next, we turned to suicides. And there, we found the same thing. We found that gun suicides had fallen and there didn't, didn't appear to be any evidence of method substitution. Uh, guns are a tragically straightforward way of taking your own life. And to the extent that people moved to other methods of attempting to take their own life, those methods were less effective, which meant people were more likely to fail uh, and then to be able to seek the help that they need. One example of the cross-state effect I talked to you about before. Tasmania, the place where the Port Arthur massacre took place, saw the most guns per person handed back in. And it saw the biggest drop in gun suicides. The ACT, the jurisdiction I'm from, uh, had relatively few guns per capita handed back in probably because the gun ownership rate wasn't very high beforehand. And it had the smallest drop in the gun suicide rate. So that made, us, made Christine and I particularly confident that what we were finding was something causal. So then we put together the, uh, the, the results of, uh, of the gun homicide and gun suicide findings, and we estimated that the Australian National Firearms Agreement saved something in the order of 200 lives per year. Now, people had said when we put it in place, well, this is a very expensive program. Remember, we weren't paying some discounted value. 
we were paying the actual value of the firearms that came in. And the cost of that program, the one-off cost, was half a billion dollars. It was so large, we actually had a tax levy in place in order to raise the money to pay for it. And so people worried that there wouldn't be a big enough benefit to pay for it. But one way of working out the uh, uh, benefit of the uh, National Firearms Agreement is to use what economists call the value of a statistical life. This is the idea that when we're making public health decisions, we need some sort of metric to work out how much to invest in life-saving technologies. And so economists have looked at things like how much people would pay for cars with airbags before airbags were compulsory, or how much workers' compensation insurance costs. And we aggregate that together and we work out a value of a, a statistical life, what we as a community have been willing to pay to avert a death. Uh, that figure at the time was something in the order of uh, two and a half uh, to five million dollars. So if you look at the 200 lives saved, multiply that by two and a half by five million. I know you're ahead of me, you've done this already. Uh, you'll get, you get a number of somewhere between 500 million and a billion dollars uh, in value to the community every year. And that's, less, that's more than the one-off cost. In other words, in, in one year of the National Firearms Agreement and the gun buyback, we put in place a program that repays itself to the community its cost every year in the uh, nearly, uh, nearly 25 years since the National Firearms Agreement was put in place. But there's something else that's curious about it. The National Firearms Agreement was put in place in order to stop mass shootings. And as, as you've heard, it did that extraordinarily effectively. But actually, mass shootings are quite an uncommon form of gun death. The, mo the person who is most likely to kill you with a gun is yourself. Gun suicides are the most common form of gun deaths. After that isn't stranger killings, it's killings by somebody who uh, knew the victim. Uh, and you can think of that often as being uh, family violence gone, tra gone tra uh, tragic. And then behind that is stranger killings. So a policy that was designed to avert mass shootings and homicides actually ended up one of being one of the best suicide prevention programs Australia has ever put in place. So the lesson to that is sometimes policies can have wonderful, unexpected benefits. Australians had, or gun advocates in Australia had argued at the time uh, that if you had a national firearms agreement, that the good guys wouldn't be able to protect themselves against the bad guys. It's this kind of a dirty Harry fantasy, that the only person who can protect against someone with a gun is another person with a gun. And what it forgets is that so often violence is uh, a spur of the moment thing. Uh, it's uh, a spousal killing or it's a, a brawl between uh, uh, people who might call themselves mates that just gets out of control. Uh, studies that have looked at uh, uh, crime often find that within minutes the perpetrator is saying, what did I do? How did this happen? Uh, with a gun, that's tragically irreversible. If someone gets in a fist fight, far more often it's reversible. And that's why overall, and uh, not only Christine and my studies, but plenty of other research in the United States, find something simple. 
More guns, more crime. Communities with more weapons tend to have higher rates of, uh, of crime. Uh, one of the examples of this is the movement to so-called stand-your-ground laws, uh, which allow uh, people to, who would otherwise uh, have to uh, retreat in the face of somebody who'd broken into their house um, to, to uh, stand up and shoot somebody who's come into their houses. Uh, these so these uh, laws were put in place by people who said, well, your, your home is your castle. You have a right to defend your, your home. But when researchers have gone back and looked at the effect of uh, these so-called stand-your-ground laws, uh, it turns out that they increase uh, deaths. And then they go a little further and they say, Who's, uh, who, who is more likely to die in this? Is it the person who breaks into the house or the homeowner? And it turns out to be the homeowner. Turns out that stand your ground laws uh, increase deaths of the person who is attempting to stand their ground. So that's the economics of gun laws. That's uh, how we understand, we understand uh, the impact of uh, gun reform on gun deaths in this critical public health issue. But then equally interesting to me as somebody who's been a politician now for 10 years is the politics of reform and how the Australian story might serve as a lesson for, our, for, for other places. The uh, gun, uh, gun law changes uh, that were put in, put in place uh, were put in place just after John Howard had won the 1996 election. Uh, he didn't have a strong uh, reforming agenda, so in some sense, this defined his first term. Uh, Howard acknowledged that he made some missteps he said one of the greatest mistakes of his career was when he went to speak to a uh, group of uh, critics uh, who were gun owners who were angry at him and his government. And his security detail said that he should wear uh, a bulletproof vest. In photographs taken from behind, you can see the bulletproof vest uh, riding up on his shoulders. Uh, and many in the crowd were outraged that he would have thought that he needed a bulletproof vest before speaking to them. Howard said he should have gone out without the bulletproof vest, uh, which you've got to say is, uh, is clearly right in hindsight, uh, but uh, you know, it reminds me of, uh, of the fact that uh, in the early 1960s, uh, everybody said John F. Kennedy's greatest strength was uh, driving around in convertibles and uh, being accessible to the people. Um, so uh, Howard's decision is, uh, is, is not, uh, not necessarily uh, wrong uh, before he made it. But it's, it's, it shaped John Howard's legacy. Howard was proud of his government's uh, willingness uh, to pay a political price to do something that was right. Tim Fisher, who was then the National Party leader and who passed away last year, uh, told me that he was also proud of taking that difficult message to some of the rural constituencies. They paid a political price. Uh, Fisher lost seats to, uh, to One Nation, which used uh, gun reform uh, as, uh, as an issue to campaign uh, against the, the government at the time. Uh, but he was always incredibly proud of what he did. And both of them, looking back at, the, at their careers, uh, saw this unexpected change that they made, which they never entered politics for, as being one of their great legacies. These issues for Australia today, there's a risk that we could backslide on some of the, the National Firearms Agreement changes that were put in place 
uh, as we get a sense of complacency, as we forget the Australia that had an average of one mass shooting a year in the lead up to Port Arthur. There's now uh, a new challenges that technology has uh, thrown up uh, in the form of 3D printed guns. Uh, the risk that uh, someone who wants to acquire a weapon uh, might actually be able to produce it in their own home uh, using plans available on the internet. And there's a curious quirk of the way in which the National Firearms Agreement was put in place. Remember I told you before that if you needed to be a sporting shooter, uh, then you would now, under the National Firearms Agreement, be required to sign up to a gun club. Well, that means, meant that gun clubs got a whole lot more revenue. Uh, and in some cases, they used that to upgrade their facilities, but in other cases, they used it to feed back in to candidates who opposed gun law reform. Uh, so Pauline Hanson, uh, Bob Catter are among the largest recipients uh, of funds from uh, gun clubs, uh, which have uh, locked, in, locked in this source of revenue as a result of the National Firearms Agreement. But uh, it has to be said that the National Firearms Agreement is uh, a strong Australian success story. And that brings me on to what's going on in the United States. In the United States now, there are more guns than there are people. Uh, in 2017, the United States experienced its worst mass shooting event uh, with 58 victims in Las Vegas. Five years before, in 2012, had been the Sandy Hook killings, uh, 28 victims, some of them school kids. My friends who live in the United States talk about the fact that active shooter drills are a regular thing uh, in which uh, teachers will have to talk with kids about what they would do if there was a shooter on the school premises, where they'd retreat to, how they'd hide, how they'd stay quiet, when they'd try and run for help, what they'd do if the person came into the room. And they talk about how, how traumatic this is for their kids coming home from school, uh, what it is to have your child have to think through in their head how they'd respond to an active, to, to, uh, to an active shooter drill. Uh, but it is frighteningly common. Uh, on an average day in the United States, 109 people will lose their lives to gun deaths. 109 every day. Of those, 65 will be victims of suicide. As I said before, the most prevalent form of gun deaths is suicide. 40 will be victims of homicide, and one will be the victim of an accident. If you're counting, there's a couple more left, which are undetermined and uh, uh, law enforcement involvement. But of the, those 109 uh, deaths represent uh, a gun death rate which is 11 times higher in the United States than it is in Australia. They have seven times as many guns as Australia per person. They have a gun death rate that is 11 times higher uh, than ours. In Australia, uh, there will be less than one in 100,000 people this year who loses their lives to gun death. In the United States, there'll be more than one in 10,000. And the gun uh, death rate in 2017 uh, set a new record, uh, eclipsing the road toll in that country. If you look at overall murders, three quarters of murders in the United States involve guns. 
If you look at suicide, half of all suicides involve guns. Gun culture is omnipresent in American society. And part of the challenge for this is the role of the National Rifle Association, an organisation that was set up originally to look after the interests of law-abiding gun owners, and which during the 1960s uh, campaigned uh, against the proliferation of guns on American streets. In that period, the, the National Rifle Association saw the, the risk that if uh, guns were in the hands of the wrong people, then that might reflect poorly on honest, uh, law-abiding gun owners. So they supported moves to get rid of what, what are called Saturday night specials, uh, guns that were uh, used by, uh, by teenagers going out on, on a Saturday, Saturday night. And then in 1977, something changed. In uh, the National Rifle Association's meeting in Cincinnati, uh, Harlan Carter, Wayne LaPierre and others staged what they call the Cincinnati Revolt, in which they took over from the much more moderate leadership and set about campaigning against any form of gun control whatsoever. That meant that by the 1980s, the National Rifle Association was campaigning against laws that would stop armour-piercing bullets, bullets that were required, described by law enforcement agencies as cop killers, because they would penetrate bulletproof vests. But the National Rifle Association saw any beginnings of uh, 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 gun regulation uh, as being something that could, er could erode their power. Uh, they campaigned against limits on uh, the, uh, the use of uh, machine, machine guns on, America, on American streets. Uh, they went ahead and held their conference in Colorado just weeks after the Columbine school shooting. They've become a much more radical organisation than they were, uh, and they've used huge amounts of money uh, in order to entrench their power in Congress. The National Rifle Association is now going through something of a, an internal scandal, uh, so uh, there is a, a possibility that they will uh, uh, have less political power in this election than beforehand, uh, but don't hold your breath. As Mike Bloomberg's gone out doing his uh, initial rallies, uh, he's had protests against him uh, by uh, National Rifle Association uh, advocates uh, who've criticised what he did as mayor of New York uh, to restrict gun ownership. So the United States is now in an extraordinarily difficult position, losing 109 of its citizens every day uh, to gun deaths uh, and having its politics gridlocked uh, and in the thrall of an extraordinarily extremist organisation in the form of the National Rifle Association. Uh, but Australia can help. We ought to be doing more to tell the world the story of what we did through the National Firearms Agreement. We need to tell, uh, tell the world the story that Australia hasn't lost its sporting shooting culture. Uh, I can go for a run in the morning in my electorate uh, where it'll take me past the rifle range and the pistol club that are near my home. Uh, members of those clubs still go along and uh, do, their, uh, do their shooting. Uh, there's still Australians who compete on the world stage uh, in shooting competitions. Our farmers have guns when they need them uh, to uh, uh, protect against feral pigs, uh, to uh, cull kangaroos when they need to. But we don't have something that's become ubiquitous in the United States. 
We don't have handguns sitting in bedside drawers. We don't have handguns sitting in the glove boxes of cars. We don't have handguns tucked into the waistbands of young blokes going out on a Saturday night. And that means that when violence spills over, it's much more likely in the United States to be settled by a, by a bullet, whereas in Australia, it might be settled by fists. We don't want either form of violence, but the more lethal it is, the more irreversible it becomes. I think Australia should be playing more of a global leadership role on small arms. We've, in the past, taken other public health initiatives to the world. When the HIV AIDS crisis struck, Australia was one of the first to tackle it through a public health initiative, which ensured that the AIDS epidemic was much more quickly brought under control in Australia than in other countries. In the area of tobacco control, we've led the world with plain packaging. We've gone over and engaged with the World Health Organisation about what other countries can learn from the Australian experience. I think there's scope for global leadership in the area of gun control. I'm not sure what motto you'd take, but perhaps per aspera ad astra, through struggles to the stars, might be an appropriate way of championing this important cause. Thanks very much. Look forward to your questions. <laughs>